Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, under cover of darkness on June 2nd, 1863, two Union ships stole up the Cumbie River in a mission that would liberate over 750 slaves from South Carolina plantations. What became known as the Cumbie Ferry Raid was the first major U.S. military operation led by a woman, Harriet Tubman. The same Harriet Tubman whose image was scheduled until recently to be on the front of the new $20 bill next year. And the same Harriet Tubman whose remarkable life as a spy, abolitionist, nurse, and cook included connections to Boston. Many know her name, but few know her story. Now, author and historian Elizabeth Cobbs is connecting the dots in a new historical novel detailing one of Harriet Tubman's greatest achievements. Later in the show, what can a loaf of bread teach us about duality or a photograph about impermanence? Conversations in Art is a collaborative art exhibit featuring two Martha's Vineyard-based chef-slash-artists at the Featherstone Center for the Arts. But first, joining me in the studio, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs, Melbourne G. Glasscock Professor of History at Texas A&M University. She's the author of several historical fiction novels, the latest of which is The Tubman Command, a dramatized account of Harriet Tubman's activities around the Cumbie Ferry Raid. Hello, Dr. Cobbs. Hello. Also with me, Lamurchi Frazier, Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History, Boston. Welcome, Lamurchi. Hello, Connie. And joining me from the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Dr. Etta Fields Black, Associate Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. Hello, Dr. Fields Black. Hello. Well, I'm glad to have all of you. I've made this journey many times, and I've never lost a passenger. You know how much longer? And what I do know. My baby! She'll freeze. Liberty don't come free. You got to fight for it. That's from the trailer of the 2016 film Carry Me Home, which follows the Ennals family's escape from slavery through Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad, the railroad in which she was a major conductor, Dr. Cobbs. Um, you have written this historical novel showcasing one of her greatest achievements, but really telling her whole story, because you say she's the greatest patriot that people don't know about. Why do you say that? You know, I've written a lot of books on American history. I've taught it for 30 years. And I started this project, you know, knowing what we all know about Harriet Tubman, which is kind of what you can fit on a cocktail napkin. We all keep repeating the refrain, you know, this major conductor on the Underground Railroad. And yet she was so much more. We really have no other female patriot in American history who matches her for length of service in perilous missions at risk of her own life with such consequential results for the cause of freedom and for the definition of America itself. There is simply no other woman really in American history who rises to her stature. And that became really clear to me as I was re researching this novel. So the novel is based, as I said, on the Cumbie 
Ferry Raid, which just, you know, the basic statistics about it are so incredible. Going behind (laughs) Confederate lines as a woman, as a black woman in the dark in the night when you were formerly enslaved and people are looking for you. That is a lot. <laughs> that's a lot, but that's what she'd been doing for 11 years. You understand, You have to understand, she comes into the war with skills that almost no one else has. She's been going behind enemy lines for 11 years, which is what the Mason-Dixon line was for black people in America. So she'd been doing that, not getting captured, enduring all those risks. So she has a kind of special training. Uh, in fact, Robert E. Lee, was, you know, said, you know, the, the major source of intelligence, you know, to the enemy are the people on the plantations. So she was adept. She'd been doing it. She'd gone back for those people. And then she had this weird thing. You're absolutely right. We always think, how could a woman do this? But for Harriet Tubman, being a woman was one of her best disguises. <laughs> Nobody expects a puny woman to do anything. And she was only five feet tall. She was so tiny, you know, a big wind could have blown her away. So she had extraordinary savvy and a kind of experience not only with clandestine warfare, but also with leading men. In other words, she'd had to get men out. Men had had to follow her in very, very precious few, if any women in the middle 19th century could say that. Thank you so much. So Lamurchi, her ties to Boston are at the highest level. She was interacting with the governor. Once she escaped to freedom, she really made use of her time above the Mason-Dixon line and below. Yes, she did. She was uh, a fierce force to be reckoned with. And um, Governor Andrew hired her in 1862 to serve as a nurse, a cook, and a spy, sending her ahead of the 54th Regiment to South Carolina to make way for uh, and negotiate and uh, cultivate relationships that would enable them to be successful as they are met by her in 1863 when they go in July. So she is here. She is with the abolitionists. She is speaking with those who are strategizing through their networking to have a successful stab at ending slavery. And she was very much involved in that. And her reconnaissance offered the generals in the Union Army some very strategic understanding of how to move. And she was extraordinary in that sense. And she's often labeled as being illiterate, but I beg to differ that she had an extraordinary literacy that many of us wish that we had. So here in Boston, she is recognized by the circles of abolition. She's here when the 54th marches up Beacon Hill, as seen by a thousand revelers, and is uh, going on to Boston Harbor to shake the hands of Frederick Douglass. We note that Harriet had a home here in Boston. We note that she after the Civil War, comes to establish a home for indigent women. So she's really particularly critical to what happens in Boston. And I want you to just pause for a moment in the storytelling of Harriet Tubman to let people know who the 54th were, because that's our pride and joy from Massachusetts, and I don't assume that everybody knows that. This Lamurchie Fraser, Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History, the 54th were. There is a raised sculpture to Robert Gould Shaw and the Massachusetts Volunteer regiment of the 54th regiment that is the uh, first regiment of black men to be raised in the north uh, to fight in the civil war it was a recruitment effort and a convincing effort of the boston community and others to appeal to president lincoln to raise this uh, regiment of men who are then offered the opportunity to be some of those who f- who strike the blow 
against slavery and noted in the uh, Emancipation Proclamation issued January 1st, 1863, on the margins where Secretary Stanton says that there shall be this regiment raised. So there's great hoopla. There is a Camp Miggs campground training that takes place from January through uh, July of 1863, where these men muster their talents, their, their might, and understand the mission ahead. And, you know, I think this this is another fact that a lot of people don't know, because I don't think people connected Harriet Tubman, I certainly didn't, with the 54th. And I know both their stories, but didn't know that connection. So that's a very important thing that comes together because of her work, but also because, as you say, of this greatest achievement and her military uh, engagement. Her, actually, she was acting as a military person, uh, a soldier, uh, Dr. Cobbs. Absolutely. Mm. She um, received a military pension after the Civil War. Now, she had to fight for for 30 years. The irony, Callie, is that men who served under her, she was the commander of a troop of scouts, and those scouts went to the U.S. Congress and got pensions as scouts within a short time after the war. She had to wait 30 years, and she was ended up with a pension of a nurse, which is, of course, half a man's yeah. pay. But, yes, she was also engaged. Um, the particular group she led up the Cumbie River where the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, and as Lamurchie said, they actually precede the 54th Massachusetts in being mustered. Um, so the crazy thing is, is that she sails back from this in- incredible mission, and they sail back, limp back into Beaufort, South Carolina, as the 54th is sailing up the river. So these two groups then combine and are a part of this great assault on Fort Wagner that, of course— is the is the pride of of that part of American history. That's my guest of Dr. Elizabeth Cobb. She's the Melbourne G. Glasscock Professor of History at Texas A&M University and the author of the historical fiction novel The Tubman Command, which is a dramatized account of Harriet Tubman's activities around the Cumbie Ferry Raid. Now, over to you, Dr. Etta Fields Black. You were a consultant you're operating from a nonfiction basis about um, the, the history uh, in the area of the Cumbie Ferry Raid with a particular focus on uh, the rice plantations. Uh, people may not know that that raid took place in and among these rice plantations. It's, you know, swampy. It's I mean, I just can't even imagine. It's cold. It's dark. And so your work is looking at those folks who were enslaved from Western Africa who were brought to work those plantations. These are the very people, Dr. Etta Fields Black, that uh, Harriet Tubman intends to free uh, through this raid. Yes, the raid took place, my research shows, on nine rice plantations in what is today the Beaufort and Colleton County areas of South Carolina. These were some of the wealthiest planters in in South Carolina and up until 1850s in, in the U.S. South. Um, the Hayward family, the Middleton family in particular, owned plantations along this river. And it's pretty amazing that in six hours, more than 730 people could be freed. And what I'm finding is that, as you can imagine, many of the people on the plantations who were freed that night were related, and there were lots of relationships between the plantations. So when historians have talked about a mysterious communication system, um, it was probably freedom seekers calling their kin and forewarning their kin that the steamboats, that the gunboats were coming, and that when the uninterrupted steam whistle blew, that everyone was to go to the docks. And so there's some very interesting relationships across plantations where we see people, husbands and wives, parents and children, 
siblings, cousins um, escaping together on June 2nd, 1863. Now, Dr. Fields Black was, at this point, Harriet Tubman, known as Moses, uh, a conductor on the Underground Railroad, so well known that when she entered into this scary journey to to um, spy and get the information for the Union uh, officers that the folks who were there enslaved would trust her and what she said was going to happen? You know, that's hard to say. The sources do not tell us that they knew of her history in the Underground Railroad, but I think the sources are pretty clear that enslaved people and freed people in Beaufort and enslaved people in the plantations trusted her um, and saw them as part of their community. Um, Dr. Cobbs's book, I think, does a beautiful job of dramatizing a scene in which Harriet Tubman um, attends a, a ring shout on a plantation outside of Beaufort. And a ring shout is a religious ceremony um, that is done by the Gullah Geechee and it's people, uh, you can't call it a dance, it's a shuffle around in a circle during a prayer ceremony. Um, so shuffling, singing, clapping, um, until it reaches a fevered pitch, uh, as only a black church can, um, and drumming as well. So these kinds of ceremonies happen frequently um, in the Low Country, and there are uh, Northern teachers who describe the ceremonies and describe being invited to the ceremonies, Tubman is actually invited to participate in the ceremony. And so I think that's a key piece of evidence that we have that, you know, the enslaved people outside of Buford, people who are still on the plantations, knew her, welcomed her, and thought of her as part of their community in ways that they didn't uh, feel about other Northern volunteers, including Charlotte Fortin, who was a black, a freed black teacher from the Philadelphia area? Um, do you think of her as in the same way that Dr. Cobbs has described uh, this a patriot who has gone unappreciated, uh, perhaps to this point? I do, I do, and I think that we, um, as Americans, know very little about Harriet Tubman's Civil War service. I think that her her history in the Underground Railroad is remarkable. And the number of people she freed over those years is remarkable. Um, but in Beaufort, South Carolina, we're talking over 730 people freed in six hours without loss of life. And I think there's nothing uh, that compares to that, uh, to a woman leading a group of spies and scouts to free that many people in such a short period of time. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs, author and professor of history at Texas A&M University, Lamurchie Fraser, director of education and interpretation at the Museum of African American History, Boston, and Dr. Etta Fields Black, you just heard her, associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University. We're discussing Dr. Cobbs's new historical novel, The Tubman Command, which is a dramatized account of Harriet Tubman's role leading the Cumbie Ferry raid during the Civil War. Um, she had a particular way of uh, leading people um, once she got out and went back for folks, and this was quite dangerous. So I wanted to play this clip. This is from NBC's 1978 TV miniseries, A Woman Called Moses. And this is Harriet Tubman, played by Cicely Tyson, instructing some of her Underground Railroad passengers on how to follow her. 
everybody hold hands. Hold hands. Get attached to a family. Could you follow behind me? All right. My hand goes up like this. I mean, stop. Do like this. Means follow me. All right? Let's hurry. I wanted to point out uh, that many people may not know that she went back to free a lot of her relatives, her parents particularly. Um, that first clip that I played when she went back to get the Ennels family, she ended up getting them because she went back for her sister who had died in the interim by the time she had you know, made her way back through all of the scary territory um, and uh, found out you know, when she arrived that she had passed away. So I, I um, at Lamerchi, the story, which is what Dr. Cobbs is really excited about telling people, the story is so exciting and dramatic. Yes, it is a, it is a major motion picture <laughs> at this point. <laughs> the way and, I see and we're it. getting a new <laughs> one, by the way. <laughs> yes. uh, there's one coming with Cynthia uh, Arrivo starring in it. You know, Wonderful, yes. wonderful. Mm. And hopefully from uh, Dr. Cobbs' book, we will get some graphic novels mm. that tell the story that reaches another targeted population. But when we look at the life of Harriet Tubman and her uh, uh, ingenuity. Uh, the, uh, she understood what it would take to uh, to gain the kind of respect that she needed to do these things. And one of them was her owning of property. She uh, purchased property in New York, and which she then goes back to pay, place her parents on that property so that she can care for them in their demise. Um, I think that she was a strategist extraordinary as she uh, goes and maps out the, the byways and highways of the Underground Railroad in trying to locate members of her family and being involved with the abolitionists, uh, particularly being um, conversant with William Still in Philadelphia, um, understanding what his book, The Underground Railroad, in its documentation could give us and give her as um, locating part members of her family to go back to get. Um, one of her, her strategies in, in terms of even being in South Carolina was she was an, an entrepreneur, if you will. She was selling her pies and using her skills as a cook to gain the confidence of the people in that who were going to be involved in that. In fact, raid. that's how uh, Dr. Cobb starts her book. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, with her work as a baker. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. I don't I don't think I understood. She was baking gingerbread. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Lamerchi, I don't want you to uh, uh, forget to say that there is a stop on the Underground Railroad connected to the museum. Yes, that's it, right. Yeah, uh, there is in mm. the south end of Boston a location um, that is near the sculpture. Harriet Tubman step on board on Columbus Avenue. The, um, the one of the side streets is where her uh, a marked plaque is that locates her in Boston, where she lived and operated. Um, we understand that her her uh, her prowess. Uh, an understanding of the uh, need for uh, indigent women to be taken care of had also uh, allowed her to uh, present a home for indigent women that is now USIS or the Harriet Tubman House. Oh, I on didn't that, realize it. Oh, that's Columbus why it's named Harriet. Oh, that's duh. why <laughs> it's named the Harriet Tubman. See, I learned something, Dr. Cobb, sitting so, right here. <laughs> so, in her senior year, she was uh, honoring the plight of women who may may not be able to take care of themselves. So, her her strategies are enormously encouraging in terms of what you can and cannot do. And I think one of the recognizers of her 
her talents was uh, Frederick Douglass, who wrote a letter back to her when she appealed to him to give her a letter of recommendation for her biography that was being prepared after the Civil War. He tells her that it is I who should be seeking a re- recommendation from you. It is you. High praise who is, indeed. Yes. So um, in in her recognition as a um, a very strong woman, but her her humanness and her ability to overcome obstacles is extraordinary. Now, children need that yeah. to understand mm-hmm. how we can progress in the 21st century. Dr. Cobb, let's pick up with something that Lamerchi Frazier uh, from the Museum of African American History here in Boston has mentioned, which is her humanness. One of the things you said you wanted to address is that there are certain ways of looking at Harriet Tubman, which I had heard was that she was really tough and that, you know, she said more than one time, I'm not leaving anybody here, so don't change your mind because I don't leave anybody behind, which meant she'd kill you if you decided halfway through you're not going. But you said the other side of her, of her warmth and kindness, never has actually been been brought to, to the fore. I think it really hasn't. I think that because she's such an icon, we tend to treat her as an icon. She's up on a pedestal. She's a statue. But, you know, marble is cold. And if you make somebody into a statue, it, it does two things. First of all, it robs them of, of really their accomplishment in a way. In other words, to say she felt no fear is to mean she wasn't very brave because the definition of bravery is to do something despite your fears. So she was a human being and a wonderful, she, you know, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, one of her sponsors here in Boston, said he knew of nobody who could make people laugh like Harriet Tubman did on stage. She was a great singer. She, Yes, she family was, I think, in so many ways key to understanding her psychological motivation. We were just talking about that. She not only went back for parents, she went back for all of her brothers. She was one of nine children. So imagine that. So just mm. think about what that means. She had four sisters and four brothers. She personally got every one of her brothers out of slavery, and every one of her sisters was lost. So re- imagine becoming an only daughter and then getting your parents out. So part of what I want to explore in the novel are those things that, you know, that make her not lesser, that make her bigger for being human, uh, and that challenge us as humans. We can't go, oh, well, of course, that was easy for Harriet Tubman because she was Harriet Tubman. No, she was this wonderful, young, vulnerable, brave tough as nails, but very, very human person, you know, tiny, tiny woman, but extraordinary spirit. And we haven't discussed her her disability, which she was hit in the head when she was 12 years old with a metal weight, which left her with these spells that now modern doctors believe is epilepsy, but nobody would know. Um, and so she was at risk at any point of just going into a spell. So she could be in the midst of, you know, leading people out, um, in the most dangerous way and could have passed out. It didn't happen, or at least it didn't happen enough to um, endanger her being able to bring people out safely. But that was something, Dr. Cobbs. Yeah, you know, <laughs> think of it this. We've all, we all know or have heard of disabled veterans, you know, people come out of war situations grievously injured. This is a person who, at risk of her life, enters as a disabled person the entire time she works on the Underground Railroad, the entire time she's serving in the U.S. Army, in the Union Army. She has this extreme, you know, a head injury that troubles her for her entire rest of her life. So, you know, that's real courage. That's the face of courage. 
All right, so here we are with Harriet Tubman's name being bandied about a lot now, not because of any of our conversation, this kind of conversation, but because she was supposed to be on uh, the face of the $20 bill. But as we know, the uh, President Trump and by virtue of his um, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin has said that is going to be postponed. It was supposed to be tied to next year's 19th uh, uh, centennial of of for when the from when women got to vote, um, and now uh, who knows? Um, the New York Times most recently did a piece saying the the design is ready to go, but it really would take political will. So we're at a time where people are interested in her story and are feeling um, those who know a little bit about her very proud that she was the one who was selected for this, but also pretty um, determined to try to make that happen. Yeah, you know, historians have gotten together. I was involved with a group last summer. We were trying to get Secretary Mnuchin to move on it. Well, we, Doris Kearns Goodwin right here from this area and Ken Burns and a whole list of Pulitzer Prize winning historians and biographers of, of Harriet Tubman. We all signed a letter to Mnuchin. Um, sadly, we, we didn't even get an answer. Mm. We did not get a single, just even an acknowledgement that 130 prominent American historians had written requesting this. Um, and so it's it's sad because, you know, Harriet Tubman, by the way, wasn't chosen even by us historians. She, That's right. It was chosen by a popular online vote of Americans, including school Led children. Led by a student. Led yeah, by a student yes, yes. And 600,000 people yeah. in a runaway vote chose her. So, I, you know... I wasn't even involved in that, but and it was only by researching this book I, I come to realize in this multi-layered way, and the way that Lamerchi's talking about here too, is that she not only served before the Civil War in this incredibly monumental role, she has this tremendous role as Dr. Fields Black has shown during the Civil War, and after the Civil War she invents social work. I mean, she, you know, at the home Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged in Auburn, New York. So she's a social worker really up through uh, almost to her death. So she's a pioneer in many different ways in American history. And it's just extraordinary that um, that our government has decided that no woman deserves to be on the U.S. currency, and in particular, Harriet Tubman. Is there something that, uh, one thing that each of you would say, Dr. Uh, Fields Black, I'm going to start with you, um, that probably people, would, we've established that most people don't know her story, would be surprised to know about her, um, which just underscores what you've just said, Dr. Cobbs, that she, you know, is an icon, a patriot, uh, deserving of this honor. Um, Dr. Fields Black, what, what do you think that uh, one thing that you can highlight about Harriet Tubman that probably most people don't know? I'm not sure that people know the enormous risk she took. Um, first of all, in going back uh, to free her siblings, her parents, and others in the Maryland Eastern Shore, and then coming south and going behind enemy lines, that everything she did once she left the plantation where she was enslaved, she did with a price on her head. You know, and so to risk her own personal freedom in order to lead the nation in realizing its ideals, I think is something that is underrecognized by many people. Uh, Lamerti Frazier, what do you think should be highlighted about her that most people don't know? 
I think that um, along with others like Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet was also concerned, though clandestinely most of her life is conducted on this Underground Railroad um, network, that she also understood public image in mm. terms of her having her photograph done mm. and made and a drawing of her in her uniform as she uh, changes fashion um, and the... Uh, the involvement of women in the Civil War. After the Civil War, when she gets married, there's a photograph that has been recently uh, uncovered by the National Museum of uh, African American Art and Culture that shows her in a lovely uh, gown and that this idea of the image and integrity of uh, those who had been formerly enslaved and now raised into public uh, note was, was uh, a terrific and enormous um, uh, uh, force to help people understand the humanity of uh, black people against those images that had been caricatures and mimicry, that the power of art to be able to do that was within her grasp and her strategies. And we should note that she was married to John Tubman, who was a free man early on, went back to get him out to bring him. He wouldn't go. He married somebody else. When she did marry with this dress that you're talking about and all of the celebration, it was a guy 22 years her senior <laughs> junior. I'm pretty impressed by that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dr. Dr. Cox, what is it that uh, now that you've uh, you know had the, uh, the advantage of doing all this uh, research for your fictional and dramatic presentation of her story that you really think needs to be highlighted that, you, that, that folks probably don't know? Well, in a way, you touch on it. Um, Harriet Tubman was motivated by love. She was motivated by love of her family, love of her country, um, and, of course, you know, love of her husband, the, the first who abandoned her and broke her heart and, you know, 25 pieces, and then the man whom she married later. And, yes, you're right, the first, her first husband was a free man of color who had other choices, and his second husband was 20 years younger, a nice, hot, tall, strapping, six-foot tall man. <laughs> so she was, she was a, a romantic <laughs> figure, and, and that's part of what I try to honor as well in my novel, because what's a good novel without a love story? <laughs> I get that. Um, where is her place in history, Dr. Etta Fields Black? Um, I know that's a big question because there's lots of folks, but uh, where is her place in American history? Where is her place in black history? Where is her place in um, uh, female history? Where is her place as you see her? I think her place is as America's first mil female military leader um, who led the largest slave revolt, can we say that, who led the largest um, escape, if you will, of enslaved people without any loss of life. And I think that makes her America's greatest patriot. Uh, Lamerchi, where is her place in history as you see it? I think that uh, she shows us a fully orbed life that begins in enslavement and goes on to that of being a um, a philanthropist, if you will, at the end of her life, and that she knew the importance of staging these um, opportunities that she took the initiative to um, to be important with. And um, as a suffragist, she was also involved in this idea of women having the right to say something. In one of her quotes, she says that one of the two most important things to her had to do with liberty or death. And she would have one of them. 
and um, her patriotism comes through with that as we ring the words that are some of the founding principles in America. So her attachment to this idea and commitment to uh, democratic principles and understanding freedom, I think, is what we need to highlight and herald from her experience. All right. Where is her place in history, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs? I think she's our heroine. And I think that that's important for Americans to understand that as she represents all American women, as we hope she will sooner than later on the $20 bill, that um, that she's, she's a part of us, we're a part of her. And I think that that's where we need to move as a country. Well, I thank you all for joining me for this very rich conversation. I would note that Harriet Tubman lived to the ripe old age of 93, and uh, it was only because illness took her out at that point. She had pneumonia, but she probably would have gone on even further. So thank you so much for uh, joining me in this discussion of America's patriot, Harriet Tubman. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs is the Melbourne G. Glasscock Professor of History at Texas A&M University. She's the author of historical fiction novels, including The Tubman Command, her latest. Lamurchie Fraser is the Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History, Boston. And Dr. Etta Fields Black is an Associate Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. Coming up, the newest restaurant pop-up on Martha's Vineyard is not a restaurant at all, but an art exhibit. Art, food, and dialogue intersect at Chez Nou, a multimedia collaboration by two chef-slash-artists from Martha's Vineyard. Conversations in Art is a new exhibit at the island's Featherstone Center for the Arts. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. The most painted building in the United States is a small red fishing shack in Rockport, Massachusetts, known to the art world as Motif Number no. 1. While each of the paintings is of the same building, each painter's work is different, using watercolor or acrylic, or focusing on a distinct angle or time of day, with lines that are straighter or more crooked, and a selection of colors that vary in brilliance. It shows how no two artists can represent a subject exactly the same way. Now a new show at the Martha's Vineyard Featherstone Center for the Arts takes the same approach. Conversations in Art features artists from a variety of disciplines, including painting, photography, sculpture, and even the culinary arts. I went to Featherstone Center to talk to two of the paired artists, two chefs who are also visual artists. I'm here in Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts at the Featherstone Center for the Arts, joined by two of the artists paired for this visual artistic conversation. Gavin Smith, private chef based on Martha's Vineyard and photographer. Hello, Gavin. Hello. Glad to have you. And Michael Rodman, chef at the Outermost Inn in Aquinnah and painter. Hello, Michael. Hi. And also with us, Ann Smith, Executive Director of the Featherstone Center for the Arts. Hello, Ann. Hello, Callie. And I'm going to start with you because what the Featherstone does here is really focus on local artists and their talents. So talk to me about first the mission of the Featherstone and then how this Conversations in Art is a part of that. 
Sure. Mm. Featherstone Center for the Arts mission is really to engage, enrich, and connect the community through the power of art and creativity. We love supporting our local island artists, and we try to do that in a number of ways based on our themed shows throughout the year. And so I really wanted to do something different this summer, focusing on two people and their different points of view, whether they take on one topic or um, in particular a, a discipline in art. And so we have paired two artists in photography, two artists in painting, and then Gavin and Michael in terms of food installation. They are both chefs and really wanted to see how they would interpret their art of cooking and the love of food and food sustainability here on Martha's Vineyard and how we could have a visual conversation about that. What does really having a conversation in art mean to you um, and what you want it to mean to the audience? I think it's just a great way for individuals to engage with the artist, to have a conversation. Sometimes we have grandparents come in with their grandchildren or a couple that come in and they have a conversation back and forth, but really don't have um, an opportunity to have an artist's point of view. So this way, they see what the artist has created, they have the artist statement, they know a little bit more about the artist and then can say, hey, we love food too. <laughs> you know, we eat homemade bread versus manufacturing manufactured bread and you know and they walk away with a different kind of a conversation than just I like that pretty painting on the wall. All right before I move over to our chef artists you're thinking out of the box with this one so how did you know that you had two chefs on the island who were artists? <laughs> well the great thing about Instagram and social media and believe it or not for me is that I get to really see what they create and prepare um, not only on social media but obviously I'm a huge foodie and I follow these guys um, wherever they go and they've been around on the island for a, a long time so I thought it was really wonderful to not only showcase the art of cooking and their art of cooking but obviously their own visual art talents. Okay well now let's talk to the two of you who are a part of an exhibit and I'm curious, what did you think when Ann called you and said, we want you to be a part of this show because, you know, not only are you a cook, but you're an artist. Michael, you start uh, then. Sure. So Ann and I have been courting each other for, for some time now to be able to work together. And so she brought this idea to me and she said, is there anybody in mind that you would want to be able to collaborate with? Instantly, Gavin came to mind because he's so talented and his, his artistic endeavors are, are wide. He does photography, he can do silk screening, he, he can do carpentry, he's a chef, so I could go on. And so I was like, wow, he has a lot of different attributes that I don't necessarily have in my wheelhouse, but I think together, the food brings us together, and my paintings are so bright and vibrant, and I, I know that his food is bright and vibrant, and so I thought, well, let's put it together. Oh, okay. And uh, Gavin, when you first got the invitation, what'd you think? Well, you know, he originally <laughs> called me and um, I am a person that is interested in many things. And, uh, you know, in college, I studied philosophy, music, as well as many visual art disciplines. It was kind of an obvious fit immediately when he called me and said, hey, you're the person I'm thinking of. I was in 100% from, from the beginning. I, I really liked the idea of thinking outside the box and creating something that could fit in this space. All right, so a lot of people already believe that cooking is art in and of itself, and now you're adding an yet another discipline to it. So as you started to come together to figure out what you wanted to say in this space for this exhibit, what did you take from cooking and what did you take from your artistry to sort of decide what pieces you would have in this exhibit? Well, it's funny because I guess the way I've kind of described it is, you know, when I'm painting, the paint they're my ingredients. So for me, there's this parallel between the two. 
And when Gavin and I, we just literally sat down, had a couple cups of coffee, we're all jazzed up. And next thing we know is we had like all these ideas about connecting the dots. And we actually had, I think in mind, like five or six installations, but we eventually just brought it down to two. Did we start with the pop-up restaurant idea? I, I think that was one of the first things that came to mind. I cook privately for the most part, but I also do pop-ups. And it's kind of the extreme version of the impermanence of restaurants and cooking and all of it. You know, with social media, you have these things that pop up in your feed and they pop up for just a second and they disappear. With cooking, you know, you spend an entire day working in pure chaos to create something that's very finished at the end of the day and then it disappears. <laughs> So we really liked the idea of kind of showcasing that impermanence and the ability for people to come in and see it and not necessarily taste it because it's a different way to look at your food. Well, they're tasting it, but a little bit differently. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, let me pick up, Gavin, on what you said, because you've been thinking about this impermanence of both cooking and art. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that I think comes back in, in life just generally all the time. I put in my artist statement, the name Shea Nu came from something that my sister and I did when I was a very young child. We set up a little pop-up restaurant in our house for our parents' anniversary. And uh, we called it Chez Nu, which is our house in French. My sister very unfortunately passed away several years ago, and that's just another reminder of how you know much you need to appreciate moments because things really are impermanent. Every moment is impermanent, and uh, I think it's something that we deal with as chefs constantly. You know, food has a shelf life. Those moments have are, are finite. You know, when you walk into a restaurant, there's a time period that you're there, and then you're gone, and it's over with. Mm -hmm. And for you, Michael, um, you've talked a lot about cooking being your artistry, and so can you link it to us specifically from you know what you put on a plate to what you in this case put on the walls here well it's very <laughs> funny because i've had numerous friends of mine say that my food is just like my paintings mm. like the color the lines the gentleness the firmness of it the color selection i'm all about color um, and my brain is very interesting i i studied finance and fine arts at stonehill college so i would go from an, an investments class to a figure drawing class and my brain has always kind of worked back and forth in that kind of creative process between business and my painting and as i got older it shifted away from business to food and that kind of took up the other side. And for us, it was very interesting because we decided that, you know, Gavin was gonna put together a dish, photograph it, and you would look at the dish and you'd look up and see the painting and there would be something that tied them together. And for me, it's, it's line, color, and emotion. And they're in both the food and the painting. And I wanted the work to be abstract and expressive because that's what food is as well. I think most guests don't understand how stressful it is to be a chef and to take this idea and to make it tangible and um, have your own creative spin on it. But I think that we were able to do that. We were able to, you're able to look at Gavin's photograph and look at my painting and see there is something that connects them. And it, visually, yes, but then also spiritually. And when you start to think about things, you know, as you go deeper into it, you, you see these relationships with food and art, and they're two and the same for me. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Martha's Vineyard chefs and artists, Gavin Smith and Michael Rotman. They are two of the artists featured in the Featherstone Center for the Arts Conversations in Art Show, which paired local artists to share a visual dialogue about an aspect of island life. Also with me, executive director of the Featherstone Center, Ann Smith. 
The thing that I enjoy personally about Martha's Vineyard is a very much a feeling of community and localness. Anne has spoken to that. But you two really get to it as chefs because you're, you're working with all the local people here and the freshest foods. And I wonder how the environment has also supported your artistry in this way. So it's, I mean, it's a whole local thing you got going on here. You got your local chefing going on. You have your local ideas and inspiration coming from the environment. I wish both of you to speak to that. Gavin, I'll start with you. Sure. You mm -hmm. know, this is a place that uh, I, I think many people have the concept that Martha's Vineyard is kind of like the playground of the rich and famous. And they miss the fact that this is a real agrarian community. There are many farms on this tiny, you know, it's 120 square miles. And I believe that currently there's something like 70 farms producing food in addition to our fisheries. So we have this amazing, you know, and it runs the gamut between it's things that are steeped in tradition and things that are, are new and, and innovative. And there are farmers here that are generational and there are farmers here that move here just to open a farm. There are grants that are given to farmers to take over this land that they could never afford and farm it because they want to keep this place, uh, you know, pure and authentic. And that farming community supports each other as well as supports chefs and people that are interested in using that food. And I think that the sense of community here is so real because we are an island and we need to take care of each other. You know, we all go through this uh, this thing every year where the summer comes and we all work as hard as we possibly can seven days a week. 27 hours a day, you know, it's a, it's a madness, but we all share it. And um, we all use that as kind of our, our guide to help each other. That idea that it takes a village is very alive on this island. And it's some, it's a place where, you know, I feel more uh, in tune with the community here than I ever have anywhere I've lived. Um, I've lived in a number of big cities. I lived in New York, I lived in Atlanta, and I loved those places and I identified with them on a level, but I never felt a part of the community in the way that I do here. And you can directly connect that to your inspiration for your work. Absolutely. I, I've really grown to cook completely seasonally. Uh, my menus are guided by what the farmers are bringing me and what the sea is bringing us. And uh, I, I love that seasonality. I love the challenge of taking, you know, these are the 10 ingredients you have for today. Make something, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that really makes it a lot more pure to me. It's not, you know, I'm not creating a menu that's going to live for six months in a restaurant and it's not a la carte. It's always different and it's always creative. So... Uh, you know, I don't go back to recipes often. It's like my favorite thing is the next thing I'm going to make. <laughs> and do you see that in your art as well? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I, for me, it's all about movement and growing. And sometimes you miss the mark, but it's always about progressing. Same question to you, Michael. Well, I, I think that Gavin hit it on the, the head there with the farms here. But the other big thing that I just want to talk about is the fisheries mm -hmm. here. And I had the pleasure of working at the Menemsha Fish House for, for many years. And I had no idea that there were so many fishermen um, on this island. And I mean, the Katama Bay with the oysters, the Cottage City guys in Oak Bluffs, um, the Chilmark guys with all that they're doing with their oysters. I mean, it's really remarkable. And then you have all of the clams, the quahogs, um, and then you have all the local fish that comes in. I mean, we see black sea bass, we see fluke, striper, bluefish, tatog. And why aren't we using these things? Why aren't we using this local ground fish that that's here, that's plentiful, that's sustainable. Things like hake, monkfish. A lot of chefs take the easy way out. Well, the, the, I don't know how to cook it. I don't know how to break it down. I don't think the guests will like it. Well, we should be working with those things and figuring out how to make the guests like it and how to break it down and how to work with those ingredients instead of finding things that are coming from halfway across the world. When we have this seafood here with this beautiful fresh water that's so clean here, 
for me, I think the seafood is probably one of the biggest valuable ingredients um, to this community. And how does it inspire you in um, both your cooking and your art? Well, I think it makes you appreciate how small you are with the ocean out here, and, and um, it makes you respect it. And uh, when you go out on a lobster boat, and even if the waves are three to five, you're thinking to yourself, how do these guys do this every day? And so there is a passion related to being a fisherman, just like there's a passion related to being an artist, a passion related to being a chef. And it's that need to create. I think that that's what it comes down to. One way or another, there's something inside Gavin and I that forces us, that pushes us to create. You know what I wanted to talk about because one or both of you mentioned it, which is about duality. We have two different perspectives on the same thing presented in different ways. So I'd love it if each of you would speak about that. Michael, I'll start with you. Yeah, so we discussed, we'll call it the bread piece. Gavin makes the most unbelievable bread. It's just, it's magic. And the idea was originally we wanted to put the manufactured bread in front of a picture, a painting of uh, Mr. Trump, and we wanted to put the, the, the real bread with a picture of Mr. Obama. Okay, that not too political. Not too political. <laughs> yeah, so right. we decided this might be a little intense, let's back it off, <laughs> yeah. let's back it off. And so we, we decided, okay, the idea of manufactured bread and real bread has so many, it could go in any direction. For me, it came down to duality, good and bad. And you know, for me as a painter, I've been doing these angels with one horn and a halo and a third eye. For me, it's about that there's good and bad within everyone. Everyone has a choice of choosing light or, or choosing darkness. And so for me, that, that was kind of what fueled the paintings behind the bread was kind of the duality in, in each and every one of us. Uh, Gavin? Uh, you know, in America, there's so much really awful bread, and it's visually... <laughs> it's, Spoken like a baker. <laughs> it's, it's, it's visually very different than something that's handmade. It's very, you know, in terms of the ingredients, in terms of the way it's processed, it's completely different. I mean, you know, the, the bread that's on display there is only four ingredients, and the, the other bread, it has almost 100 ingredients, most of which you can't pronounce. <laughs> and I thought it just was a, a very obvious thing to point at, that the way we eat is very different. I mean, across the gamut, the way that people eat is is really individual. But we, some of us have the choice to choose this processed food or not. Some of us just don't have that choice. So unfortunately, it's a lot less expensive to go to the store and buy the processed cheap food. And it's, uh, it's rather unfortunate. And, it, you know, I really, I love the idea of, people eating food that is is healthy, that is sustenance, and not necessarily food as medicine, as people have kind of come to refer to it, but food as something that really is is, is sustaining. I mean, it's something that gives you your, your energy and your life force. And if you're eating things that are, are really just inundated with chemical and all these other things, it's not giving you the sustenance that you need. So I want to point out that, you know, the two of you as artists could just very easily have done really interesting paintings and really interesting photographs and not necessarily have statements about, you know, for lack of a better expression, issue related concerns. I mean, it could just be there because there are artists that say, look, I'm not commenting on the political. I'm just putting it out there. What? Why did you two decide that your conversation in art really is based on some things that you're dealing with both as chefs and then as just citizens of the world? You know, I think when we first sat down and we sat down for our cups of coffee, we loved the idea of this show being called Conversations in Art. And we wanted to at least nudge people in the direction of the conversations we would like to be had out there in the world. 
And I think it was important for us to say, you know, these are things that we want people to talk about. And, and these are things that are, are kind of ever present in our life, this idea of impermanence and this idea of duality. And we wanted to present those in a way that was interesting and would spark a conversation. Same for you, Michael. I pretty much concur with, with what Gavin had to say. I mean, for us, it, we knew that the bread installation would create many different conversations, no matter who the viewer was. If it's a six-year-old and a mom, or if it's um, you know five adults that are just here for the show, I think bread, when you break it down, it's if how many societies, I mean, the basis of the society is bread. And if our bread is filled with all these chemicals, like what does that say about us? So, you know, that for us, it was, it was definitely to bring that into attention, but also the idea of how expensive food is. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people don't have the option, that don't know how to make bread, that can't get access to an oven, that have to buy this manufactured bread. And, and so that's a whole other issue that this conversation could lead into, but it's something we just wanted to present manufactured bread versus real bread and let the conversation go from there. Uh, that's my guest, Michael Rodman. He's a chef artist on Martha's Vineyard. And I'm here also with Gavin Smith, chef artist, and Ann Smith, who is the executive director of the Featherstone Center for the Arts in Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts. Um, there's a process to each of the things that you do, your day job as chefs and your other job as, as artists, uh, visual artists. What specifically do you take from either of those processes and incorporate it in the other? You know, I think that, uh, you know, being a chef, there is this incredible organized chaos all day long. You you are just running. You're doing eight or nine different things at once. And the goal is to reach a finished product. You're trying to reach this dish that is finished, that has the right textures and temperatures and flavor. And there's this in, insane kind of run to the finish line every single day. And one of Michael's pieces is actually called Organized Chaos. And I think <laughs> he really nails it because it's very frenetic, but at the same time, it's finished and it's, it, it has texture and color and all of these things. And, you know, uh, I mean, cooking really is an art form. I mean, if you care for it, you lose all of the other things while you're cooking. You're not thinking about what you're doing tomorrow. You're not thinking about grandma's birthday. You're not thinking of these other things. You're connected with it really, really, really tangibly. And I think with, with art, it's exactly the same thing. All right, that's my guest, Gavin Smith. Michael Rodman, how do you, what, what, what do you take specifically? Well, I, I think mm -hmm. it's a balance between the art of art, the art of food, and the craft of making art, and the craft of making food. And there's a difference. And the craft part is the daily grind, the systems, the routine, the preparation, whereas the art is where the creative energy comes from it's where the idea is born and you have to take your artistic side and apply it to the craft to be able to get a product that you're happy with but again it really comes down to all-out organized chaos it, it is organized chaos from start to finish because you never know what's going to happen in the restaurant business you know your supplier could not show up till four o'clock with your produce you got an hour to get ready dishwasher goes down someone cuts off a finger you never know what's going to happen you know what i mean it's it's just and that's like and that's the exciting part of it but at the same time it's that stress because all of those logistics interfere with the creation of the art that we're trying to do so now i want to ask about your emotional state of being because those of us who are not artists 
certainly those of us who are not chefs, often wonder what's the internal feeling you have when you're in the creative space in either of those jobs that you have, chef or artist? Like, what do you feel like when you're striking the canvas, taking a photo? What's it like to get that perfectly shaped cucumber? <laughs> I mean, to me, it's it's always kind of an adventure and I'm passionate, but I, I love it. I absolutely love the creative process. I love getting that box of vegetables and saying, all right, what's the next thing? How am I going to make this thing? I mean, it brings me absolute joy. So for me, it's a very comfortable place. I, I know some artists are tortured or whatever else, but I'm definitely not that. I personally, I, I love it and I love taking the time and the care to create. All right, Michael. It's very meditative. And I almost find that the kitchen is the opposite. The kitchen is very intense. Your milieu for creating is very different of each thing. So for me, I, I paint at night now. Um, and I go home and I paint after I cook. And sometimes it's till 2, 3, 4 in the morning. But for me, it's meditative. It helps me kind of relax. And sometimes I'll, I'll paint a painting and I don't even remember painting it. Because I'm just I'm in this place. You go to this place. I disconnect. But food, you can't. You are tasting everything. You are watching everyone. You are opening the ovens, making sure nothing's... I mean, you are... All of your senses have to be on full throttle when you're in the kitchen. When I'm in front of a canvas, I'm able to just decompress and let all of that out. And what do you want people to take away from these conversations, this specific conversation in art between these two chefs? I think it's really important to appreciate what we have here on this island, the artistry and the expertise of, of young chefs and of young artists here on the island and that we need to support them, that you don't have to go to New York to find good food. You don't have to go to New York to see good art. It's right here on Martha's Vineyard, created and produced each and every day. All right. Well, I thank all of you for joining me. It's a fabulous exhibit and so creative and very local, which we all love on Under the Radar. Gavin Smith is a private chef based on Martha's Vineyard and photographer. Michael Rodman is a chef at the Outermost Inn in Aquina and a painter. Conversations in Art is on display at the Featherstone Center for the Arts now until August 18th. And Ann Smith is executive director of the Featherstone Center. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. <laughs>